The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Members of the seminary community and friends of Westminster that join us on this occasion, in his commentary on 1 Peter 4, 12, and 13, and what is said there about Christian suffering, Calvin speaks of the usefulness of the cross. This usefulness, as he sees it, has two parts. For one, the refining trial God makes of our faith, and second, our becoming partakers with Christ. This morning, I want to reflect on what Calvin considers the far-surpassing utility of the second aspect, what Peter and the rest of the New Testament, especially Paul, call the fellowship or participation of Christians in the suffering and death of Christ. Now, I propose to do this by exploring our theme, Christian suffering, within the context of a, of a broader, perennially debated issue, and that is the issue of biblical eschatology, particularly the eschatology of the New Testament. So if you want a subtitle to these remarks, it could be eschatology and Christian suffering. We begin by trying for a rather large view of things. In surveying biblical studies as a whole over the past century, it's fair to say that few developments, if any, have had such a far-reaching impact as preoccupation with the eschatology of the New Testament writers, a preoccupation which has eventually come to dominate New Testament studies. This development has involved intense debate, but a basic consensus has emerged, and that consensus, it should be recognized, is different in certain important respects than the understanding of eschatology previously accepted. Although it's interesting to note in passing that if we look for explicit usages of the word eschatology, this conventional understanding is apparently no earlier than the beginning of the 19th century. Now, in bold strokes, the difference is this. According to the traditional understanding, eschatology is a topic of dogmatic or systematic theology limited to those last things associated with and dating from the second coming of Christ, including the so-called intermediate state following death. In the newer consensus, eschatology is expanded to include the state of affairs that has already begun with the work of Christ in what the New Testament calls, for example, the fullness of time, these last days, at the end of the ages. Involved also, then, in this more recent understanding of eschatology, are basic and decisive considerations already realized in the present identity and experience of the Christian, and so, too, in the present life and mission of the Church. 
The emergence of this consensus has not been without its opponents and detractors. The complaint is heard that the word eschatology has been so overworked that it has become virtually meaningless and useless. Biblical studies, some feel, have been hypnotized by a kind of eschatological monotone. Everything, it seems, is eschatological, and there is nothing that is not eschatological. One recent writer is even convinced that eschatology is a dangerous and malevolent word. That's his word. Its usage, he believes, has developed like a cancer and ought to be excised from the vocabulary of biblical studies and buried without delay. But with another writer, we agree that while eschatology is indeed a slippery word and needs to be used more carefully than is often the case, and that need, in fact, is a large concern of my remarks this morning, still it would be monumentally retrogressive were biblical studies to abandon the expanded understanding of eschatology that has materialized in recent decades. At stake here are perspectives vital to the biblical message and the full power of the gospel. Those puzzled or irritated by the prominence of the word eschatology in the vocabulary of contemporary biblical studies either have not yet read the New Testament carefully or for, or for whatever reasons, are not able to perceive what it says. I move on then next to consider something of the biblical warrant for what we could call a broadened understanding of eschatology. And this can be done briefly along several lines. First, a global elemental kind of consideration that comes from taking in the history of Revelation in its organic wholeness is the essentially unified eschatological hope of the Old Testament, a hope which, to make a fair generalization, has a single focus on the arrival of the day of the Lord inaugurated by the coming of the Messiah. From this perspective, the first and second comings, distinguished by us on the basis of the New Testament, are held together as two episodes or parts of one eschatological coming. The traditional viewpoint, by emphasizing as it does the distinction between the first and second comings, giving rise to its systematic conception of eschatology, has lost sight of this unity and the way, even in the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, these two comings are mixed, so intermingled that the difficulty interpretation sometime has in distinguishing them is well known. Historically, a broadened understanding of eschatology emerges right at the close of the last century, with the renewed attention beginning at that time to the teaching of Jesus, in particular to what, according to the Synoptic Gospels, is obviously the central theme of that proclamation, namely the kingdom of God. In reaction to the idealistic misunderstandings of older liberalism, interpretation of all schools has come to the conclusion, whether or not subsequently dispensing with the exegetical conclusion as a piece of outdated mythology, 
the conclusion that Jesus did not preach the actualization of a timeless, always present moral order, but the arrival now, at last, of the final rule of God in creation, present in and through his person and work. Jesus' disciples are blessed to see and to hear now what the many prophets and righteous men of old longed to see and to hear but did not, Matthew 13, 16, and 17. The traditional distinction between the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of glory is revealing here. It tends to separate what belongs together and to obscure that for Jesus, it is a matter of one eschatological kingdom that is both present and future in its coming. Another helpful example is Paul's teaching on the plainly eschatological event of the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ is not an isolated event of the past, but in its full, once-for-all historicity, it is the first fruits, the actual beginning of the great resurrection harvest at the end of history. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes this point to assure believers of their future share in this eschatological harvest uh, in the resurrection of the body at Christ's return. But elsewhere, Paul is no less emphatic that believers are already raised with Christ and have ascended with him. Already they are, as Paul says, Romans 6.13, alive from the dead. It's within this same eschatological framework that Paul's extensive teaching on the work of the Holy Spirit belongs, and belongs, I would emphasize, in its entirety. Christ exalted is the life-giving Spirit. The Spirit is the Spirit of the resurrected Christ. The Spirit with which the Church has been baptized and in which all believers share is the first fruits of what will be received in the resurrection of the body. The spirit now at work in believers is the actual down payment on the eschatological inheritance to be given in its fullness at Christ's return. The Christian life is indeed eschatological life. But now, just as we are under the impact of these considerations, which have been recalled here only in a, in a very cursory way and could easily be multiplied. Just as we are under the impact of these considerations, we want to pose this question. When these considerations are given their due, when they are understood, not as too often is still the case, as figurative rhetoric or what is true, quote, in principle, unquote, whereby the principle is virtually platonic, but when they are understood as realistic eschatology, as an eschatological realism which is decisive for the present life of the church and the present experience of believers, then we ask this question. Does this stress on realized or inaugurated eschatology take adequate account of the concrete and sobering realities of human affairs and everyday living? Does not this emphasis on the present eschatological kingship of Christ inevitably tend towards some form of theocratic triumphalism, 
which gravely underestimates the significance of Christ's return and all that is delayed until then. These questions and others like them uh, ought not uh, could be multiplied, and these questions ought not to be ignored or suppressed. They point up the necessity, already animated, for greater definition and precision in our conception of eschatology. The thesis, then, that I propose to you and will try to develop as time permits is that what the New Testament teaches about suffering, especially the relation of the sufferings of Christians to the sufferings and death of Christ, provides indispensable focus and clarification to the questions of biblical eschatology. Two passages, both in Paul, serve well as a point of departure. A brief examination of each of them in turn will disclose a decisive and controlling perspective, one that is, we can almost say, the key to understanding all other statements in the New Testament on Christian suffering. The first of these passages is 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 11. In the opening verses of 2 Corinthians, Paul sounds a, a note that is basic to the entire letter. He points out to his readers that they, together with him, share in what Paul calls the sufferings of Christ. The sense of this expression in verse 5, particularly the force of the genitive of Christ, is amplified then by what Paul says about his own ministry beginning at chapter 4 and verse 7. We have, Paul says, this treasure, that is, according to the immediately preceding verses, the gospel of the experiential knowledge of the eschatological glory of God in Christ. We have this treasure, Paul says, in earthen vessels, clay pots, that is, in the fragileness of mortality and human weakness. Verses 8 and 9 go on to spell out something of the, of the psychophysical experiences involved. Paul is afflicted, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Verses 10 and 11 then function to provide an overall assessment they describe the situation characterized by persecution and suffering as a whole. It is a matter, Paul says, of always carrying around in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. And again, always being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our mortal flesh. The point to ponder here is the obvious pairing of what Paul calls the dying of Jesus and the life of Jesus as a comprehensive cover of his existence. Negatively, they are not in view as two separate parts or sectors of experience, as if the, the life of Jesus and the dying of Jesus 
balance each other off in a kind of plus-minus fashion and add it together, make up the whole. Rather, the life of Jesus, Paul is saying, is revealed in the mortal flesh and nowhere else. The mortal body is the locus of the life of Jesus. Paul's mortality and weakness taken over in the service of Christ constitute the comprehensive medium through which the eschatological life of the glorified Christ comes to expression. The dying of Jesus, we can perhaps say, is the existence form that shapes the manifestation of his life in Paul. In the sense, then, that suffering, the dying of Jesus, manifests the resurrection life of Jesus Christian suffering is not merely or only suffering for Christ, but as Paul says, the sufferings of Christ. The essentially subjective force of the genitive, or at least a subjective nuance, must be recognized and may not be toned down or explained away. <clears throat> Philippians 3.10 is another compelling expression of the same thought. Beginning at verse 3 of the chapter, Paul describes his boast in Christ in contrast to his former confidence in himself. He considers everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, to gaining Christ and being found in him. Verse 10 then, tells us that this experiential knowledge of Christ, union with Christ, involves knowing, as Paul expresses it, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. The sequence here is arresting. It does not read, as we might expect, suffering, death, and then resurrection, Rather, taking in verse 11, Paul knows himself to be enclosed in a circle of resurrection. He is already raised with Christ and experiences resurrection power in order that he might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Verse 10, then, fills out this circle. The sequence here is resurrection, then suffering and death. It is crucial to see the force of the conjunction and, in this expression, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. It does not mean that the fellowship of his sufferings is some other additional reality in our experience than the power of his resurrection. Rather, the and explicates, it explains, it tells us, together with 2 Corinthians 4, 10, and 11, that the power of Christ's resurrection is realized just as the fellowship of his sufferings and conformity to his death. It tells us of the forming and patterning power of the resurrection. The resurrection is a conforming energy, an energy that produces conformity to Christ's death. The impact, if you will, the impress 
of the resurrection in Paul's existence is the cross. Misunderstandings can crop up at this point. I want next to deal with at least one of them. In the theological currents that have swept over the world during the past 10 to 15 years, no issue has been a more intensive concern than that of suffering. Human suffering is a central theme in the theology of revolution and other liberation theologies. Suffering is both the target and the means of revolutionary praxis. In particular, in the writing program of Jürgen Moltmann, the sequel to The Theology of Hope has turned out to be The Crucified God, in which the principle of pain, suffering, and abandonment is taken up into the very being, or we should say more accurately, the becoming of God himself, and structures relationships within the Trinity. Suffering, in Moltmann's view, is first of all and antecedently inter-Trinitarian. If I read correctly, it is increasingly clear that the theology of hope is not really that. Rather, because for one thing it is not directed by a more sure prophetic word, it is a theology not of genuine hope, but uncertain expectation. Expectations predicated on what man is able to rest of his future within the givenness of his mortality. But this is not the hope of the New Testament. Paul certainly does not glorify suffering as an end in itself. Nor does he absolutize suffering and death as essential to man as man, or for that matter, to God as God. For him, life and death are not a binary opposition that constitute the deep structure of human existence, so that to remove death from man would be to deprive him of his humanity. Rather, Paul is certain that at Christ's return we shall all be changed, that the mortal must put on immortality and mortality be swallowed up by life. And he has this confidence, we may be sure, not as a lingering remnant of late Jewish apocalyptic, not yet purged from his thinking, but as an integral element of his revealed gospel. But now, with this clear among us, with this absolutely crucial eschatological reservation made, we must go on to appreciate that as long as believers are in the mortal body, and that is for the period between the resurrection and return of Christ, with Paul it is simply difficult to overemphasize the intimate correlation of life and death in the experience of the believer, the interpenetration of suffering and glory, weakness and power. For this period, for as long as we are in the mortal flesh and the sentence of death is written into our existence, resurrection eschatology is eschatology of the cross, and the theology of the cross is the key signature of all theology that would be truly practical theology. 
in the life of the church until Jesus comes to remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead according to my gospel, as Paul enjoins us, 2 Timothy 2.8. To remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead is to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, as was also the apostles' determination, 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. The form of Christ's resurrection power in this world is the fellowship of his sufferings, as the cross-conformed sufferings of the church. The sign of inaugurated eschatology is the cross. Suffering with Christ is a primary eschatological discriminant. And so, in all, the essence of Christian existence, as Paul captures it elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, is this. Dying, and yet we live. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, and yet possessing everything. Romans 8.17 says that we are God's adopted children if, in fact, we suffer with Christ in order that we may be glorified with him. This clause in its context further clarifies the picture for us at several important and disputed points. First, it is sometimes argued that the sufferings mentioned in the passages looked at are the sufferings of Paul the Apostle, specifically apostolic suffering, which excludes the rest of the church. But a number of considerations tell against this restriction. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that the whole congregation shares in his sufferings. In Philippians, the fellowship of Christ's sufferings and conformity to his death are, along with righteousness by faith, essential aspects of union with Christ. And here in Romans 8, as we shall presently see more clearly, suffering with Christ plainly includes all believers and is inseparable from their adoption. To be sure, Paul's sufferings are those of an apostle. They result from the discharge of his unique apostolic calling to provide a once-for-all foundational witness to Christ. But then, in the sense that we are to hold fast to this infallible witness and maintain it in the world, and are to build on this apostolic foundation alone, the church, too, is apostolic. We confess that the one holy Catholic church is also apostolic. And that means further that we must also recognize that until Jesus comes, the church truly realizes its unity, holiness, and Catholicity in the apostolicity of its suffering witness to Christ. Second, it should not be thought that the comprehensive suffering of which Paul speaks holds for only a part of the church's history and is bound to give way to better days when the gospel will have spread and had a greater influence in the world. Rather, the present suffering of the believer continues until his future glorification, 
the terminus on what Paul designates the sufferings of the present time is, in his words, the revelation of the sons of God. That is, the adoption that will take place at Christ's return in the resurrection of the body. Until Christ returns then, all Christian existence continues to be suffering with Christ. Thirdly, somewhat more length. Christian suffering, the sufferings of Christ, do not have to be sought. They are not, at least in the first place, an imperative to be obeyed. The conditional construction in Romans 8.17 is like that in verse 9, where Paul says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Suffering with Christ, according to verse 17, is not a condition to be fulfilled in order to earn adoption, but a condition or circumstance given with our adoption. One reason we have difficulty in seeing this givenness is that our understanding of the fellowship of Christ's sufferings is too narrow and restricted. And this is just one point that I'm sure needs more attention than is being given to it here. We tend to think only of persecution that follows on explicit witness to Christ, or perhaps also of intense physical suffering or economic hardships that result because of a stand taken for the gospel. Certainly, the aspect of persecution should not be depreciated and is central in the New Testament. And we may well ask ourselves why it is so largely absent from the experience of most of us. But the sufferings of Christ are much broader. They are the Christian's involvement in the sufferings of the present time as the time of comprehensive subjection of the entire creation to futility and frustration to decay and a, perver- and a pervasive, innervating weakness. They are the believer's participation in what was also, according to the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms, a fundamental dimension of Christ's humiliation, undergoing the miseries of this life, exposure to the indignities of the world, the infirmities of his flesh, the temptations of Satan. We may say that where existence in creation under the curse on sin and in the mortal body is not simply born, whether it be stoically or in some other sinfully self-centered, rebellious way, but born for Christ and lived in his service, there comprehensively is the fellowship of his suffering. The givenness of Christian suffering needs to be stressed. This is expressed almost literally in Philippians 1.29. It has been given to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Notice that Paul does not say faith is common to all believers, while suffering is the lot of only some. He expresses instead a correlativity of faith and suffering the intimate bond between them. The Christian life, he is telling us, 
is a not only but also proposition, not only believing but also suffering. This givenness or the indicative of Christian suffering can be grasped from what Paul teaches about adoption and sanctification. In Romans 8, particularly, suffering with Christ is nothing less than the present mode or condition of our adoption. Remove that suffering, Paul is saying, and you take away our very identity as God's adopted children, our being heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Also, the renewing work of God in the believer in its entirety, our sanctification, is at stake here. Verse 29 tells us the target of God's electing purpose in sanctification is conformity to the image of his Son. The specific pattern of transformation is conformation. Conformation to Christ, not as an abstraction or general embodiment of virtues and holy living, but in the historical pattern of his incarnate existence. Suffering first and then glory. For the sons, conformity to the Son means suffering now for the present time and the glory to be revealed at his return. So when, for example, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul asserts that as believers behold the glory of the exalted Lord Christ, they are even now being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, the further explanation of this transformation from glory to glory, its being made specific and concrete, is given in the next section, and what is said there, as we have seen, about the treasure in earthen vessels and the life of Jesus manifested in the mortal body. Or in the light of Philippians 3.10, present transformation from glory to glory is realized in being conformed to his death. Peter confirms this when he tells us that it is just as we share the sufferings of Christ that the Holy Spirit precisely in his identity as the spirit of glory, rests on us. It's 1 Peter 4, 12, and 13, and 14. With Calvin, we must recognize that as Christ's whole life was nothing but a sort of perpetual cross, so the Christian life in its entirety, not just certain parts, is to be a continual cross where the church is not being conformed to Christ in suffering, it is simply not true to itself as the church. It is without glory, nor will it inherit glory. Just as the spirit of glory came upon Jesus at his Jordan baptism, opening up before him the way of suffering obedience that led to the cross, so the same Holy Spirit with which the church was baptized at Pentecost points it to the path of suffering. The Pentecostal spirit is as well the spirit of suffering, although this tends to be, as someone has put it, the spiritual gift no one is talking about. It was, in fact, not only to James and John, but through them to the whole church that Jesus said, you will drink of the cup I drink of and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. Until he comes again, 
The concrete form of the Christian's fellowship with Christ is the cross. It is not only to some, but all his disciples that Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. And again, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. And we might add this in passing to get at our concern from another angle. We should not think that for Jesus' disciples, taking up their cross is a burden somehow in addition to keeping his commandments or one other commandment among the rest. Rather, cross-bearing, we may say, is the comprehensive configuration of obedience to Christ. But now in all this, it is absolutely essential. Really, everything depends on recognizing that the reality of Christian suffering is, and I know no better word, eschatological. It is so natural for us to associate suffering only with eschatological delay and to view it only in the light of what we do not yet have in Christ. But when this happens, we have lost sight of the critical factor that in the New Testament, Christian suffering is always seen within the context of the coming of the kingdom of God in power and as a manifestation of the resurrection life of Jesus. Only with this proviso, this eschatological proviso, is Christian suffering the fellowship of Christ's suffering. Right at this point, then, we can appreciate just one of the decisive differences between the historical sufferings of Jesus and Christian suffering. For Christ, there was no fellowship in suffering. Only the blind insensitivity of the disciples all the way and that awful climax of isolation and being forsaken by God and abandoned to his wrath on our behalf on the cross. For believers, in suffering, there is participation in the life and power of their Savior, a participation which is seriously misunderstood as long as it is merely seen as compensating and offsetting particular times of hardship and suffering. Theirs is a fellowship, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, a fellowship in which his power is made perfect, not alongside of or beyond, but in their weakness. His limitless power is manifested through the medium of our pervasive and extreme weakness. This is just one reason why two things so often associated with Christian suffering in the New Testament are comfort and joy. We may now look briefly at Colossians 1.24. There Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and in my flesh I fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Certainly, the vital or spiritual union between the glorified Christ and believers is an explanatory presupposition of this very striking and much debated statement. However, what Paul calls here the afflictions of Christ are not what Christ presently suffers in his exaltation, as some would have it, nor are they, to take another view, the sufferings of the church considered as Christ's 
because of the union between them, or because Paul here adapts the Jewish notion of the end-time messianic woes which the people of God endure for the sake of the Messiah and to usher in his coming. Rather, we agree with those exegetes who hold that the afflictions in view are the past historical sufferings of Christ himself in his humiliation. But how in this sense is there something lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Hardly that Christ's atoning sacrifice was deficient and needs to be supplemented, or that the reconciliation is incomplete. Apart from other considerations, the whole point of Colossians especially is the uniqueness and all-sufficiency of Christ and his work and his sacrifice. In verses 20 through 22, Paul has just said that Christ has made peace by the blood of his cross and that by his death we are now reconciled. But now, it is one thing in the context of Reformation polemics, for instance, to say what Paul does not mean. Even the best and more recent Roman Catholic exegesis has not tried to find support here for the notion of a treasury of merits supplied by the saints. But that still leaves the question, what does Paul mean? How, when he has just said in verse 19 that all the fullness dwells in Christ, can he go on to speak of filling up what is lacking in his afflictions? The answer would appear to lie in what Paul says elsewhere about our sharing in Christ's and the fellowship of his sufferings. The critical factor here is the special, unique, and I think ultimately unfathomable solidarity between Christ and the church. This union is such that not only can the sufferings of believers be viewed as Christ's and as being conformed to his death, but also the personal past historical sufferings of Christ and the present afflictions of the church are seen together as constituting one whole. Again, certainly not in the sense that the sufferings of the church have some additive atoning or reconciling value. But there are other aspects than soteriological from which the church's suffering can be bracketed with the suffering of Christ himself. These aspects we may designate apostolic or missiological and have to do with the gospel mission in the world of the church together with its head. With Professor Murray, we must say in reference to this verse that together with the sufferings of Christ, in their suffering, believers, and now quoting, are regarded as filling up the total quota of sufferings requisite to the consummation of redemption and the glorification of the whole body of Christ. Now, without construing this total quota into the doubtful view that the suffering of each Christian hastens the parousia by mechanically reducing a fixed quantity of suffering still outstanding, Still, this verse points us to consider that an important aspect of the rationale for eschatological delay, for delay between the resurrection and return of Christ, is the necessary role of suffering for the gospel and its advance appointed to the church. Also, I would suggest in passing, and as a matter for further discussion, that what Paul says here has a definite bearing on the much-debated issue of the nature of the covenant 
and the role of Christ as covenant mediator and last Adam. The suggestion, at least, is that the spirit works suffering obedience of the church, which is simply the fruit of self-abandoning faith that rests in and lives out of its covenant head. That suffering is together with his own obedience, as Murray puts it, integral and necessary to attaining the full possession of the eschatological inheritance. In bringing these remarks to a close, I want to broaden them in two directions. First, in making the emphasis I have so far, it is of course essential to maintain balance within a larger context. Some may be uneasy that I have spoken in the way I have been with Calvin of the usefulness of the cross, and that so much has been said about the cross, but so little about the atonement. I want to remove any uncertainty there may be in this respect. In the, in the tradition of historic Christian theology, especially since Anselm, the cross and the atonement have been virtually synonymous. Again and again, in every generation, and ours is surely no exception, it has been truly crucial to stress the exclusive significance of the cross of Christ, that his sufferings and death have an atoning, reconciling efficacy that is true of none other. I would not want anything I have said this morning to leave the impression that I do not share this concern fully. But my particular concern this morning is to remind us that it is, after all, a matter of balance. Too much of church history in considering the significance of the cross has gotten trapped in a false dilemma, the dilemma between atonement and conformity, or as we could put it, between Christ as mediator and Christ as example. The requisite balance is nowhere more decisively and effectively struck than in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. Christ suffered, Peter says, for you, and in back of that for you, lies all the atoning uniqueness and exclusive justifying efficacy of that suffering. Again, Peter tells us, Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, and by his wounds you have been healed. And at that, not as if he were one sheep among the rest, but as he was and is the shepherd and overseer of the sheep, who were going astray. At the same time, however, Peter is intent on showing that a purpose, a particular utility of Christ's sufferings and death, is that we might die to sin and live for righteousness, and to leave you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. And those footsteps lead, as Paul teaches us, into the fellowship of his sufferings and being conformed to his death. Galatians 6.14, if I have read it correctly, is instructive at this point. There Paul declares, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. While the atonement is certainly in Paul's mind here, and you can see that in verses 12 and 13, that is not prominent in the verses that follow. Rather, what explicates this boast in the cross is the fact, as he continues in verse 14, 
that through the cross, the world has been crucified to Paul and Paul to the world. The fact further, according to verse 15, that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, human status or performance of any kind mean anything, but that what counts is a new creation. A new creation, verse 16 goes on to tell us, that is realized in and among those who walk according to its rule. This new creation rule, in turn, means finally, verse 17, and this is the final note of the Galatian epistle before the closing benediction, that Paul bears in his body the brand marks, the stigmata of Jesus. Paul's boast in the cross of Jesus is the gracious patterning of his life and ministry by that cross. Risking a generalization that has all manner of significant exceptions, it does seem fair to say that the churches of the Reformation have shown a much better, a much better grasp of the for us of Christ's cross and the gospel than they have of the with him of that gospel, particularly suffering with him. The question we must continue to put to ourselves is this, and certainly we will hardly be so blind as to suppose that for the church in today's world, this is anything less than a most searching and urgent question. Do we really understand the exclusive efficacy of Christ's death if we do not also grasp its inclusive aspect? For the New Testament, we must recognize the efficacy of the atonement has not been applied where it does not issue in the fellowship of his sufferings and conformity to his death. Really, we should say that the fellowship of Christ's sufferings is an inseparable benefit of the atonement. Putting our question another way, when with the Westminster Shorter Catechism we teach that adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God, will our catechizing, including that of our lives, make clear, as Paul does, not only in Romans 8.17, but by the entire course of his ministry, that until Christ returns, the comprehensive mode of our enjoying all these privileges of adopted sons is suffering with him. There are a few truths which the church down through its history has been more inclined to evade. There are few truths which the church can less afford to evade. I want then also to address for a moment the, tra the traditional evangelical debates on eschatology and the question of the millennium. And I do this with a continuing sense of the complexity of the issues recognizing the plausible appeal to scripture that each position can make and the need for all sides to do greater justice to the whole of scripture. My plea here is simply this, for a greater recognition of what we have tried to show to be the defining or delineating role of Christian suffering in biblical eschatology and that this perspective be given its due in our discussions. Looking in one direction, we must agree that New Testament eschatology is most assuredly an eschatology of victory, and of victory presently being realized.
But any outlook that fails to see that for the church, between the resurrection and return of Christ, and until that return, the eschatology of victory is an eschatology of suffering, any outlook that otherwise tends to remove the dimension of suffering from the present triumph of the church distorts the gospel and confuses the apostolic mission of the church in the world. The church does indeed carry the eschatological victory of Jesus into the world, but only as it takes up the cross after him. Its glory, always veiled, is revealed in its suffering with him. Until Jesus comes, the resurrection glory in the church is a matter of strength made perfect in suffering. The golden age is the age of power perfected in weakness. But now some will respond, doesn't this outlook betray pessimism? A pessimism that virtually turns away from creation and our calling in it. Doesn't it surrender or at least undermine the ideal so precious to our Reformed faith of the whole of life to God's glory and of a gospel that addresses the whole man? To this we reply with Abraham Kuyper that we will not yield one square inch of the crown rights of our King Jesus over the whole creation. And we will insist that the gospel offers the present reality of eschatological life in Christ present renewal and transformation of the believer in his entirety according to the inner man with the redirection and reintegration of human life in all its aspects. And we will have much more to say as to the cosmic scope of redemption and the awesome breadth of the gospel of the kingdom. But at the same time, we must also insist with Paul in Romans 8 on this cosmic truth, that the whole creation groans, that there is not one square inch of creation which is not now groaning in anxious longing of the revelation of the sons of God. And in the meantime, until that revelation at Jesus' coming, these adopted sons, under the power of the Spirit, also groan, as Paul tells us not in isolation from creation or by withdrawing from everyday life and responsibilities, but they groan with creation. They groan out of their deep, concreated solidarity with the rest of creation. They groan by entering fully and with hope for the entire creation into the realities of daily living and cultural involvement, knowing all along that for the present time these are all subject to futility and decay. They know full well, too, the balance to which believers are called, even though it so often proves elusive and, and difficult to maintain. That peculiarly balanced lifestyle that is demanded of believers because, as Paul puts it elsewhere, and we paraphrase him just slightly, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who do in fact have wives should be as if they had none. Those who do mourn as if they did not mourn. Those who do rejoice as if they did not rejoice. Those who do buy as if they did not possess. And those who in fact are to use the things of the world 
as if they did not make full use of them, for this world, in its present form, is passing away. And Paul has no more ultimate word on this situation than to say, the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed to us. Only in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings will the church avoid the extremes of a quasi-theocratic utopianism on the one hand and a millennial escapism and narrowing of the gospel on the other. For this reason, too, that we may stay free of these extremes with their inevitable tendency to various forms of ideological and even practical bondage, it has been given to us not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. All told, we may sum up in paraphrase of the eschatological vision captured in Psalm 84. Blessed are they whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are thy ways, who going through the veil of misery use it for a well and the pools are filled with water, they will go from strength to strength. This, too, is the usefulness of the cross.